So this morning, as we said, we begin our new short sermon series. A couple weeks ago, we finished our other short sermon series for the fall, We Are the Church. We talked about church membership. Last week, we spent some time just looking at the supremacy, the preeminence of our Savior, Jesus. And now this week, we begin a new sermon series, The Lord's Work in the Lord's Way, which you can see in your bulletin. And in this series, as you might see in the series subtitle, we will be specifically looking at why church structure matters. And that will especially be the case in the weeks coming after this week. But also, as the series title in itself says, also throughout these weeks, we're not only just going to be looking at church structure, but our overarching point as a church, as followers of Jesus Christ, is the importance of doing the Lord's work in the Lord's way. Church structure will be how we specifically apply that as a church, but the overarching point is going to be that for us individually in our own personal lives, and for us as a church, it really matters in the Bible that we do God's work in God's way. Here's a quick side note before we get into all that and to talk exactly about what that means. As a brief side note, I do just want to say that I want you to know I did not make up that phrase. I wish I did. Um, instead, I got that phrase from one of my favorite uh, writers and Bible speakers in the faith, and his name is Francis Schaeffer, uh, because he's the one who used this phrase a lot and even has a sermon about this. And I do recommend almost anything written or said by Schaefer, but that's a side note. But that brings us back to what this actually means, the Lord's work in the Lord's way. Because you, you might be wondering what, what we mean by that. So what does it mean? Well, in basic, the idea is that when we read the Bible, as we follow Jesus and as we then follow our God, what matters for his glory and for our good and for our fruitfulness isn't just doing God's work in the way that we think best. Instead, what we see in the Bible is that if God also tells us the way to do his work, then that matters just as much. Let me say that again. What we see in the Bible is that if God also tells us the way to do his work, then that matters just as much. Or to say it another way, if we in our good intentions and in our desire to do God's work, glorifying him, worshiping him, following him, even doing things like spreading his gospel, if we decide, to do, decide and desire to do all that genuinely, but then if we ignore some of God's ways and how he's told us to do all that, and that is a big deal according to the Bible. And it's such a big deal that our efforts will be more in vain and it won't bring as much glory to God. And so that's what we mean by the importance of doing the Lord's work in the Lord's way. And even as we say all that, I hope you're seeing how this really applies to us, especially in our current culture. And we will talk about this more later in the message, but isn't it so true that in our individualistic, do-whatever-works, American Christian culture, we know we should do God's work. But when we think about the way to do it, we often don't pay as much attention to how the Bible tells us the way. And that's because individually we all have our own ideas and pragmatically we think that whatever works is best. But again, when we come to the Bible, we'll see, as we'll see throughout this morning, that if God has told us the way, it matters just as much as the work. Even if it looks like the work went fine. 
But to be clear on this, it is often true in the Bible that God doesn't tell us exactly the way to do specific works. And so on those things, I want to be clear that we do have a lot of biblical freedom. And I think the best example of this is styles of musical worship. Because God has told us to sing to one another in worship. He has told us to sing in spirit and in truth. And so what we sing, the lyrics we sing, really do matter. But then besides that, whether the style is contemporary American music or piano hymns or African drum music or a cappella singing of the Psalms, it doesn't matter. The way isn't prescribed. But then, on other things in the Bible, like what we've been talking about individually being part of a church and taking seriously church membership and like certain church structure and in other ways in our lives, on these things, if we just have good intentions and do whatever we think is best, and then for the most part, kind of just ignore what God has told us in the Bible, the way to do it. And the Bible says it won't be as glorifying to God or as good for us or as fruitful. All because even with our good intentions and thinking it'll work, we're downplaying God's ways. And so that again is the Lord's work in the Lord's way. Which brings us to Mark chapter 7. And this is our primary text this morning because this, in my opinion, is perhaps the strongest example of this in the whole New Testament. And on this, though, I will be honest, this is an extreme example here. And I say that because this example is so extreme of trying to do God's work but ignoring God's way that Jesus is essentially saying here that these people don't really know the Lord. And so this is an extreme example. But that being said, the reason we chose this for our text this morning is that more, more important than the example is Jesus' diagnosis of the root issue, as we're going to see, of the root thing that we're to be aware of as we try to do the Lord's work in the Lord's way. And so that's what we're going to see soon in Mark chapter 7. And yet, before we actually do get into that and in our outline of how we're going to go through that, to begin, let me just share with you two Old Testament stories, two Old Testament stories that I hope will start to illustrate what we really mean by all this, this idea of the Lord's work and the Lord's way. And I want to share these because if you're still a little confused or perhaps a little unconvinced that this is a biblical idea, not only are we about to see it in Mark chapter 7, but there's also some stories from the Old Testament that gets us across well. And we're just going to be looking at two of them. And for our examples, one of them will be a positive example, meaning it'll be an example where God's people did do God's work and followed his ways. And then the second will be a negative example. And so two Old Testament examples, and for both, just for the sake of time, we won't go to the passage together, but I always encourage you to study on your own if you'd like, so we just want to listen to these stories. So first, for the positive example, this is a story from the book of Joshua. The book of Joshua. And as you may know, the book of Joshua is right after the Torah, which is the five first books of the Bible. So Joshua is the sixth book of the Bible. And as you may know, one of the main themes of the first five books of the Bible is God's people not obeying God. And as a result, the books end with Moses and most of God's people not entering the promised land. But then, in the book of Joshua, Joshua now becomes the leader of God's people. And in a real way, it's almost like a fresh start with a new generation of Israelites who are trying to follow the Lord and obey God and conquer the promised land. And in the first few chapters of the book of Joshua, that starts to happen. They miraculously cross the River Jordan. They enter the land. And now they're ready to go and do God's work of taking over the promised land. And so that's the context. But then comes what happens in Joshua 5. 
Joshua chapter 5. So they're in the land. They're ready to do God's work. And we're even told at the beginning of Joshua chapter 5 that the other nations now know that the Israelites are there. (laughs) And so we might think that they'd get right to conquering the land. It's finally time. But instead, what does Joshua decide to do in Joshua chapter 5? He decides to circumcise all the male Israelites. (laughs) And in context, this decision is fascinating because think about it. They're newly in the land. This land currently occupied by other nations and the other nations know they're there and the Israelites know that they're about to fight the other nations. And yet what does Joshua, the commander of this army, do? Circumcise all the males in Israel. (laughs) And this is fascinating because as you might be tracking, from a military perspective, this seems like a really poor decision. (laughs) Because remember, circumcision is a surgery that requires time to recover from, especially back then. And the Bible is clear in that chapter that all the Israelites' men who were born in the previous generation in the wilderness were not circumcised. And so this is essentially Joshua's whole army. But what does he do? He recognizes the importance of doing it God's way. If he was a pragmatist, like we often are, Right? You could imagine him saying, yes, I know God's circumcision is important, but we got to do your work here. That's what we're in the land for, so we'll do circumcision after. Or he could have thought, yes, I know circumcision is important, but that will literally disable all of my troops. <laughs> so that does not make sense. But instead, to Joshua, obeying God's work in God's way was more important. And it paid off. God protected them. And then the next chapter in Joshua chapter 6 is that stunning, famous victory at Jericho. And so that's a positive example of doing the Lord's work in the Lord's way. But now for a negative example, and for what I think is the best example of this concept in the whole Old Testament, we'll recount a story about King Saul from 1 Samuel 13. And this is a lesser known story compared to some of the bigger Old Testament stories. But as you see, this is an example that I think is really applicable to us in our culture, especially as Americans. And that's because as we hear this story, it's pretty clear that number one, Saul had pretty good intentions. And number two, he just wanted to do God's work. And so he meant well, and he was trying to do God's work, but what he doesn't do is follow God's way. So stories in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 13, and like Joshua 5, we won't go there for the sake of time, but in brief, what's going on is that King Saul and the Israelites are fighting the Philistines, like they often did back then. And the Israelites had just won a battle against the Philistines, but then in response to losing this battle, the Philistines decide to muster an overwhelming number of troops against the Israelites. And the Bible says in that chapter that it was, quote, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and, quote, troops like the sand on the seashore. So that's the context. And remember, Saul is the commander of the army and the king of God's people. And so his job is to protect God's people. But the Israelites at this point don't have anywhere enough troops, and they're in trouble. And so what happens then is first, Saul recognizes this, recognizes this, but not only does he recognize it, but he sees that many of his Israelites are also becoming discouraged because of this. And so seeing all of that, what does he do? Well, in brief, 
Saul goes to the Lord. And, and hearing that, we might think, good, right? That's, that's definitely the right response. And it is to a degree, but here's what's important. So at that time, in God's word in the Old Testament, it was clear that only priests were supposed to offer sacrifices to God. And in the sacrificial system, sacrifices were offered to please God, to worship God, to get God's favor. And Saul knew all that. And again, he was trying to do his work as, as king. And he thought he needed God's attention and favor at that moment. And so Saul wanted to offer sacrifices. But the problem was, at that moment, Samuel the priest wasn't with Saul. And so, in God's prescribed way... Saul technically couldn't offer sacrifices and seek God's favor that way. But again, Saul thought he really needed God's favor and wanted God's help. All good intentions. And so what does he do? Well, he decides to command the sacrifices to be brought and he offers them himself. And then right away, Samuel shows up. And the first thing Samuel asks Saul is, quote, what have you done? And interesting for us, church, is Saul's response. So remember the whole situation. Saul's literally trying to defend God's people and he's seeking God's help. And so Saul says to Samuel in 1 Samuel 13, 11 and 12, quote, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you, Samuel, had not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had all mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not fought, sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. So, so do you hear Saul's point? All this was going on and it was looking bad for God's people and Saul was king and so what did he want to do? He wanted to, quote, seek the favor of the Lord. And so he did what usually corresponds to that by offering a burnt offering. And yet what's Samuel's response to all this? It's the next line in the story, quote, you have done foolishly. And from then on, it doesn't go well for Saul, leading to the kingdom even being taken away from him. And so that's the negative example from the Old Testament. Again, the point for us in that story is that Samuel was trying to do God's work by protecting God's people as king. And he seemed to have decent intentions. There's nothing in the way that the story's written that makes Saul out to be malicious or anything. And so he has the intentions, the desire to do God's work, but what's so serious about what he did? He didn't do it in God's way. Instead, in his pragmatism and his trying to do just whatever he thought would work, he ignored God's way and it really mattered. And so that's the point. Once again, for this morning and for this series, there's a serious responsibility and blessing of doing the Lord's work in the Lord's way if he tells us the way. But that now finally does bring us to our text. So again, we're in Mark 7 here. And as a outline, we're quickly going to go through this text with two sections this morning. Two sections. First, we're going to go through the whole text briefly and see Jesus explaining the situation. And then second, we'll go through it again and see Jesus giving the diagnosis. And it's this then that we'll apply mainly to ourselves. So in some two sections. First, the situation. Second, Jesus' diagnosis. And then we'll close our message this morning with a few takeaways. 
So with that said, let's now begin our first section in Mark 7 here and see the situation. And for this, we're going to read all, the, all of verses 6 through 13, but we're going to start with just verses 6 through 8. So if you want to look down at your Bibles, Mark 7, verses 6 through 8. And Jesus said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it's written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. So we're picking up in the middle of the story here, and in brief, in Mark 7 here, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, as you can see, of their many traditions. In the paragraph before what we just read, the tradition he was specifically addressing was their excessive washings. And we could talk a lot about that, but instead, we're going to talk about more the tradition that Jesus is going to talk about in the following verses. And so let's actually read those now, verses 9 through 13. Jesus continues, and he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. So as you can see in that first sentence of this paragraph in verse 9, Jesus is now telling them another way that they're rejecting God's commandment in favor of their tradition. And to do this, what Jesus does is he gives the Old Testament commands and then he explains the tradition they have developed that downplays those commands. And as for the commands, you can see in verse 10, they are honoring father and mother and not reviling father and mother. But then in response to this, Jesus says that they say to their father and mothers in verse 11, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban that is given to God. And it's it's this idea of Corban that probably needs a little explaining, although in brief it actually isn't that hard to understand. So that word Corban simply means devoted or given to God, like the Bible says here. And the practice Jesus was referring to was when someone would decide to take something of theirs and devote it to God, usually by offering it in the temple. And so that's Corbin. And understanding that then, we can see that the situation here is this. So the commands from God in the Old Testament were that if someone, were that someone was supposed to honor their father and mother. And especially back then, it was important in their old age for mom and dad to be provided for in obedience to that command. And so that's the Old Testament command. But then, over time and hundreds of years, what started happening is that people started to say, yes, I can use this money to provide for mom and dad, Or I could devote it to God and give it to spiritual use. And often people would do that and they'd give it as Corbin. And here though is the important point of interpretation for us. So yes, it is true that in Jesus' times many people were using this to avoid giving money to mom and dad. But it's also true, church, that how this tradition seemed to develop was probably from good intentions. Meaning it started with people, and we know particularly rabbis, who started saying, okay, our God graciously provides us with money. And we could use that money to provide for mom and dad, or we could give it to God. And you could see where that started taking them. 
But we'll talk about more of that in our second section. But that then is a situation here. God has commands. And it could be that with this Corbin, many people were genuinely trying to give to God and glorify God. But Jesus' overall point is that by doing this, people were downplaying God's word in order to do it their way. Even in their way of giving to God. And so Jesus concludes by saying, verse 13, that this is, quote, making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. So that's the situation Jesus is addressing. But now for our second section on this text, we'll move on to the more important diagnosis that Jesus gives. Because it's here that although we don't practice Corbin, it's here that we'll see that the diagnosis surprisingly can apply to us. And for this, we can see Jesus' diagnosis clearly four times in just these eight verses. Four times. So look down at your Bibles again. We'll read those four times. First, verse 7, Jesus says, In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. Then he continues in verse 8, You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And then again in verse 9, And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. And then finally in the last verse, verse 13, Thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down and many such things you do. And so as you can see, Jesus' diagnosis of the situation is clear. And not only clear, but it's emphatic. And what's his diagnosis? Well, according to our Savior, in this situation here, there's two things at work. First is God, and second is man. God and man. And specifically, it's God and his commandment in verse 8 and 9, and God's word in verse 13. And then second, it's man and his commandment in verse 7, and his tradition in verse 9 and 13. And so I know that's obvious, but that's the diagnosis. Includes God and what he says versus man and what he says. And so technically, Jesus' diagnosis of the sickness, if you will, is laying aside the words of God in order to follow the words and tradition of men. And so that's what's at play. And of course, that diagnosis is kind of obvious. But the reason that this text and this teaching from Jesus is so helpful is that the more that we dig into this, the more profound what he's saying really gets. And so to see this, it's here that we need to dig a bit deeper into that word and that idea of tradition that Jesus talks about. And I think we need to do this because when we come to that word in English, especially as Bible-believing Christians, we have specific ideas in our heads. But I want us together to get to the heart of what this means to have a tradition. And so for this, let's understand two things on the idea of tradition. Two things on traditions. And to begin, first, we need to remember that traditions back then and traditions today usually are not formed out of spite. Instead, on the contrary, like this idea of Corbin, often traditions, even ones that ultimately downplay God's word, are just people thinking that something is a good, even glorifying, God-glorifying way of doing something. And I say that because that is actually exactly what was going on with the Pharisees and their traditions. 
Because we often read about the Pharisees and Jesus' denouncement of much of their thinking, and we think that the Pharisees were just known as bad anti-God men. But in reality, as you might know from history, it was the Pharisees that were the respected, seemingly godly men of the day. The Sadducees were more the political and compromising group, but the Pharisees were the respected group. The ones who are really trying to obey God's word. And most people usually love them. And so we can think that these kind of traditions were formed out of spite. But we have little evidence to that. Instead, most of the tradition was formed because they really wanted to do God's work. And obey God's rules and how they thought they should. And this is especially the case, case because as you might know or you might not know, but the Pharisees as a group didn't exist in the Old Testament because they developed after the famous exile of the Israelites in the Old Testament. And so put yourself in these guys' shoes. After reading about their Israelites being so disobedient for so many years and then finally being exiled, what's their reaction? Strict obedience. In order to do that, they made up many guidelines tradition. And for them, I'm sure most of their guidelines seemed like they were for their good and for God's glory. And so that's the first thing that we need to know about tradition. They are usually formed because of good intentions in religious sects back then and in Christian circles today. And so, that being said, this means, if you're tracking, that when Jesus so denounces their tradition here, he isn't denouncing it because of bad intention. Because again, for some of them, with this idea of Corbin, there could have been good intention there. Instead, as we see, he's denouncing this tradition specifically because tradition can lead to the downplaying of God's word, and God's word is of utmost importance. (laughs) So that's the first thing about traditions. But then the second thing about traditions, and perhaps even more applicable to us, is that we need to know that when we Bible-believing evangelicals especially When we come to that word tradition in the Bible, we usually think of the Pharisees or often the Roman Catholics. And because of all that, we can sometimes think that we don't carry in or have many traditions. And in one sense, by the grace of God, we try not to, especially in our doctrine. But then in practice, the truth is that we often do have many traditions. And that's what I hope we will all see here this morning because it will really help us as a church and for where we're going as a church because we, we may think that we don't really carry many traditions into our faith or into the church, but we do. In our ways, in how we do things, we have subtle traditions. And it's, then, it's that then what we have to analyze, right, individually and as a church because, again, Jesus' point here is that traditions, good-intentioned or not, are dangerous because they can lead to the downplaying of God's word. And so even though we do not hold to tradition as an official source of authority like the Roman Catholics do, we still have a lot of traditions that do impact the way we think, the way we act, especially the way we do church. And so with all that said, let me just share with you five traditions, five traditions that we've inherited and that we have as Westerners, Americans, and especially American Christians, all which impact us. And as you hear these, please test them for yourself. But I list them because we all agree from Jesus himself here also in Mark chapter 7 that our ultimate goal is faithfulness to God's word. 
But also, I I bet we'd all agree that sometimes we don't elevate God's word like we should. And so why is that? Well, it's often because we've inherited and we just have traditions, traditions that subtly impact the way we think and act. And so again, here's five of the main traditions that we've inherited and that we have as Western Christians in no particular order. And that's for the first. It's the one we've been talking about a little bit already, and that's the tradition of pragmatism pragmatism. And if that word is is new or confusing to you, all you need to know is that pragmatism is essentially just judging something by how well it works. The idea that something is good as long as it works. And I say this is a tradition because it's the air we breathe. But it's not always been the air that people breathe. Because often in history, as you study cultures, often people more just cared about doing whatever they thought was right and good and didn't care if it worked or not. But for us, Westerners, and especially sometimes American Christians, we breathe this idea of pragmatism, of doing whatever seems to work. But then if we come to Christ and taking his teaching here seriously, we need to be careful then that this whatever works attitude doesn't lead us to downplaying God's word and elevating whatever we think works. So that's the first tradition, which leads to the second tradition. And this we've also talked a little bit about, and it's the default belief that a lot of us have that sincerity equals morality. Sincerity equals morality. And this is a tradition because we live in a culture that for a while has subtly believed that in most cases, the test of if something is good or okay is if the person was sincere or intent in doing that thing. And again, like pragmatism, this is just the air we breathe even often in the church. And there is a truth to this. Intent and sincerity does matter. But again, back to Jesus' point, if we start to think that sincerity or meaning well in the way we do things matters just as much as or more than actually following God in his word, then our tradition has overtaken God's word. Which leads to the third tradition. And again, these are in no particular order, but this is probably the one that is the biggest and impacts all of us. And this is the tradition of individualism. Individualism. And now this one isn't just something that we breathe as Westerners and American, Americans, but this almost lies underneath everything that we do and how we think and act. And this again becomes obvious that this is a tradition of ours when you study other cultures of history and of the world where individualism isn't such a default tradition. But for us in our current culture, even in the modern church, we so naturally default to thinking about me and my wants, and my opinions, and doing it my way, and what I like or don't like. As a sort of side note, church, this is again why the Bible's emphasis, God's emphasis on church and church membership is such a big deal. Because let's just all be honest, for many of us, it might be seriously hard to agree to be an official member of a church and to obey explicit Bible commands like submitting to elders and committing to the biblical ways and plans of the church, even though we know a lot of that might be true according to God's word after we talked about it for multiple weeks. 
And it may even be really hard, and I understand this, and I sympathize this, for you to personally sign a form that you may not like. I sympathize with that. But the question is for all of us, myself included, to ask is, why is all that? Ask yourself, why is following God's word when it talks about community and, and the series of church and church membership and church unity so hard for us as Americans? Why does it seem to so rub against the grain? Well, often and subtly, it's because of our default individualism. It's the American way. But once again, I hope you're seeing that if any of that is the case at all, what could be happening there is something like exactly what Jesus is talking about. It's about having this default tradition of individualism, which is the air we all breathe and all struggle with, that tradition of individualism that then can make God's word less important and less central. Which leads to the fourth and fifth traditions. And it's these that impact the way we as Americans mainly, I would say, do church and less individually, although these traditions do impact both. And so for the fourth tradition, it's the tradition of Western business. Western business. Or the tradition of business-mindedness, if you will. And now, please don't hear me saying that business is bad. None of these traditions are technically bad in themselves. And business and work are a blessing to societies and to people. But the point of us calling this a tradition that we've inherited is that when we look at a lot of modern churches and how they operate and how they do church, and especially in church constitutions and bylaws, what really is the tradition that impacts so much of it? Well, it's business. It's Western business. It's, it's taking ideas from the business world and importing them into God's church, not because of any specific Bible text, but because it works, which is pragmatism. And to be honest, as, as we go forward with this series and as we go forward as a church, brothers and sisters, into the new year and ordaining elders and eventually updating our bylaws, this is something that I hope our church keeps in mind. Because the reality is, and I've seen this in a lot of churches, and I'm sure you have as well, sometimes so much of the way churches run is based on ideas from the business world and not from God's word. Now, now I know that there's a minimal amount of business stuff that has to be in us since we are a, a nonprofit in a country, but then, besides that, when, when we start using languages, language, like words like committees or calling something a board and such. We need to realize that we are not using ideas specifically from God's word to guide us, but instead words and ideas from modern businesses and institutions. And again, technically that may not be bad in itself, but in reality, often when we do that, our churches and how our bylaws are written and how we do things, what ends up happening is we can subtly elevate business and downplay God's word and what he says. And so that's just something to be cautious of as we go forward as a church. But that then leads to the fifth tradition, and this is similar to the fourth. And this is the tradition of American politics. American politics. 
And again, like business, please, I'm not saying that that is bad or anything. But again, when it comes to churches and how we run and what we think works best, again, we need to realize that sometimes so much of church structure, especially church constitutions and bylaws, is dictated because we think it works in the political realm. Not because of any specific Bible text, but because it works in the political realm, and so we bring it into the church. And so I know that's a lot and maybe heavy, but, but I hope you're seeing that. All that being said, my goal and our church's goal, and I pray your goal, individually and as a church, is to be as robustly biblical as possible. Elevating God's word and what he says as much as possible. And again, the reason for that is because of what Jesus says here in Mark chapter 7. Because what often happens is our traditions can subtly come in and downplay God's word. And so all that being said, I hope you're now seeing the importance of following the Lord's work in the Lord's way. Because what we mean by this is that we must do God's work in God's way. And it means as we seek to do this, we have to be careful of our traditions, especially pragmatism and individualism that are so natural to us. That's like the air we breathe. And instead, we must focus our personal lives and our church structure on whatever God says in his word. All for his glory, for us individually and our good, and for the health and the mission of this church. And so that's the idea in our text this morning. But now as we close, with all that said, let me just share and end with three takeaways we can leave with. Three takeaways and then we'll be done. And one takeaway will be for us individually, one will be for us as a church, and then one will simply be an overarching takeaway. So takeaway number one for us individually is so after seeing all that, I just now encourage you personally to analyze your life and ask, are there traditions especially pragmatism and individualism? Are there traditions that I've inherited that so consume my thinking that they're actually leading me to downplaying God's word, whether I've realized it or not? Because that's taking Mark 7 and applying it specifically to yourself. And I, and I think this can apply to many different areas. For example, as we've been talking about, it could apply to really not caring that much about the biblical idea of church or church membership like we talked about because of individualism. Or it could be downplaying church unity because of individualism. Or it could be something totally different like not praying and reading your Bibles much because you're sincerely trying to be a good husband or spouse or parent and you're just so busy and you mean well. Or it could be something more similar to the idea of Corbin here. It could be that you're so consumed with things that you do for God that it's led you to downplaying your other God-given responsibilities like being a good husband, wife, or parent, or friend, or whatever it is. So there's many other examples that could be given, but the point is we each need to see that our knee-jerk traditions can lead us to downplaying and following God's word. And so that's the first takeaway for us individually. But then takeaway number two, and for us as a church, my prayer now concerning our vision and where we're going as a church is I hope we can now agree and take away from all here that above all, again, we just want to listen to God's word see his ways and obey him. And this is sort of why we're doing this series. 
Because although we could apply this idea of the Lord's work and the Lord's way to many things, in this series we will be applying it specifically to church structure because in reality, as in so many churches, in our thinking of elders and deacons and the congregation, so much tradition is often there. Now again, we wouldn't say that. We think we're anti-tradition and doctrinally we are, but then when it comes to how we really think about these things and how it should all work in the church, that's often when our pragmatism and our sincerity focus and our individualism and our business-mindedness and the political influence all come in. And so so that's why we're doing this sermon series and, and that's why this is also following that series on membership. Because now I really hope, if you're sitting there, you're wondering what's going on with all this, I hope you're seeing the vision we now have as as a church for the health of our church going forward. And so, and so to be really honest, I, I know, I know that a lot of this can seem like a lot of change and I know that I'm fallible as a pastor and I'm just trying my best to follow God's word but, but I really do hope that you see that the reason we're doing these series is because first, membership is really knowing who is this flock because that's God's way of doing church. Because church in the Bible is not a club or a society based on how long or how short you've been here or what you can offer the church. Instead, the local church, by definition, is simply a group of assembled people. And so as a pastor and as a church going forward, after not having a membership list for a handful of years, we need to know who officially is in this assembly right now who biblically agrees and commits to these biblical things because that's part of God's way of doing church. But then second, now going forward in the sermon series, in the next two weeks, we'll really define the way that God has set up the church to be with its elders, deacons, and the role of the congregation. And so our goal there will again to be really to see those things in his word. And so that's our takeaway as a church to do all of that and again to do it as robustly biblical as possible knowing that it's for God's glory and for our good. But that then leads us to our third and final takeaway this morning. And to be honest, this one I got from Francis Schaeffer himself in that message, The Lord's Work and the Lord's Way. And it's this. So with all that said, yes, we want to individually and as a church be as biblical as possible in the way we do things. But overall, what we also need to take away from all of this And especially, I encourage you, what we now need to pray for is a sense of need. A sense of need. And we end on this point because we might acknowledge all this and now leave here saying, yes, I want to do the Lord's work in the Lord's way. But unless we really feel we need God's help, we will default to doing it our way with our traditions, especially individualism and pragmatism. And so that's why we need to leave here with a sense of humble, God, I need you, need. This feeling of, God, we need your help. We have so many traditions we breathe, each and every one of us. So much that impacts our thinking and our doing. So help us now, individually and as a church, to hear clearly from your word about your work and your way. And so that's our prayer. And the opposite of this sense of need, by the way, would be pride. I say that because that's exactly what, as we know, got the Pharisees in Jesus' day in so much trouble. They weren't needy and just going to God's word. Instead, yes, they loved God's word. They said they did, and I really believe they did, but they also loved their thoughts and what they wanted and their ways. 
And so our calling and our challenge for me as your pastor and for us as a church is to avoid that pride and instead to come needy to God's word, to come humbly and needy to God's word in our own personal lives, in our church, in these topics of church and church membership and church structure, to come needy so that we may really follow his ways for his glory and our good. Amen.